Hi, this is Peter Schiff. It is Friday, December 16th, 2016. Well, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve did exactly what they did last year. They waited until the last possible meeting to nudge the federal funds rate up by one quarter of 1%. So now, after two years of tightening, the lower bound of the Fed's range has gone from zero to one half of 1%. Now, Janet Yellen said the Fed made this decision to lift rates because of its confidence in the U.S. economy. That is complete nonsense. If the Fed was confident in the U.S. economy, rates would be much higher than a half a percent. The Fed would have raised rates a long time ago and by much more than this. In fact, they could have lifted rates by more than 25 basis points on Wednesday, yet they had so little confidence in the economy that this is what they did. In fact, I believe that the only reason the Fed raised rates this this December is the same reason they did so last December. They did it despite having no confidence in the economy but they didn't want to send a message that they were that worried. So they raised interest rates by the smallest possible amount. And they also did it uh, to try to preserve their credibility when it comes to talking about future interest rates. I mean, think about one half of 1%. When Alan Greenspan slashed interest rates in the aftermath of the September 11th disaster and the bursting of the dot-com bubble, when the stock market was plunging and the economy was in recession. He was so worried about the economy that he lowered rates down to 1%. Well, now Yellen is so confident in the economy, the highest she's willing to raise them is one half of 1%. This is half of where they were lowered in panic uh, by, by Greenspan. So the fact that rates are only a half a percent, what does that tell you? about the true confidence that Janet Yellen and the rest of the Federal Reserve have in the U.S. economy. Now, also, just like last year, the Fed is pretending that this December rate hike is going to lead to many more rate hikes in the coming year. After Yellen raised rates December last year, it was widely expected that the Fed would raise interest rates four times. And in reality, They raised rates only once. And of course, throughout the year, they kept talking about raising rates, just like they did the prior year, yet all their talk produced one loan rate hike. I don't remember any strategist out there that thought the Fed was not going to raise rates at all or only one time. I was the only one that thought they wouldn't raise them at all. And the fact that they again raised them by one quarter of a point I still think I was far closer to being accurate at the beginning of the year than anybody else. I don't even think anybody else had two. You know, most people were three or four, but even if you had two, maybe if you want to go by the old prices right, I still won because I didn't go over. But now you have the Fed posturing the same way. Now the markets are anticipating three rate hikes for 
2017. Well, I think the markets will be just as disappointed and the Fed will, be, will fail to deliver on this expectation. In fact, think about it. When the Fed raised rates in December last year, they had forecast GDP growth for this year to be 2.4. And of course, many private forecasters were more optimistic than that. But the economy is, ending, is going to end up growing below 2%, at least based on the official measurement. I don't think the economy is growing at all because I don't believe the official GDP numbers because I believe they understate inflation and therefore they overstate growth. But even with that built in, we are not going to achieve the 2.4% that the Fed anticipated. It'll be, so, it'll be south of 2%. Today, or Wednesday, Janet Yellen indicated that she believed that next year, in 2017, the economy would grow by 2.1%. So in other words, the Fed is less optimistic about the prospects for GDP growth now than they were a year ago when they raised rates. Well, given that, if the Fed was unable to deliver more than one rate hike in 2016, despite their having been more optimistic on 2016 than they are in 2017, why do people believe the Fed is going to be any more successful in raising rates this year when they failed last year? Also, I think it's interesting that stock market investors and currency traders, they are more optimistic on U.S. economic growth probably than I've seen them in, in a long, long time. Far more optimistic than the Fed. The Fed doesn't seem to believe that Donald Trump is going to do anything to produce economic growth because they were more optimistic when they knew that Obama was going to be president than they are now knowing that it's going to be Donald Trump. So, you know, so many people put so much stock in what Janet Yellen says. They think she's so smart. Well, why are they dismissing the fact that she doesn't think the economy is going to grow uh, faster than 2.1%? And of course, they overestimated what they thought the growth was going to be for 2016. I'm sure they're overestimating it again for, for 2017. Because what the market has now that it didn't have then is it has to deal with the headwind of rising interest rates. Interest rates have already risen much more than the quarter point hike to the federal funds. If you look at the yields on 10 year or longer maturities, they have moved up sharply. Look at the increase we've already had in mortgage rates. So, you know, stock market investors are dismissing the increase in interest rates because they're counting on, you know, all this extra profits that are supposedly going to be coming as a result of faster growth that the Federal Reserve doesn't even see and hasn't even built into its forecast. <clears throat> if <clears throat> the stock market investors are right and growth is going to be much more than what the Fed thinks, then you would assume that interest rates are actually going to rise to an even greater degree. But the markets want to have it both ways. They want to pretend we're going to have all this economic growth, but they want to ignore the fact that, in theory at least, that would mean that we would even have an even greater tightening than we would if growth was slower. But this is just wild, you know, unbridled, irrational exuberance that is going on in the stock market. <clears throat> you know, Janet Yellen also expressed optimism <clears throat> that 
the rate of inflation would reach its 2% target, yet not exceed it. The Fed's forecast for inflation in 2017 is 1.9%, as measured by the CPI, right? They got it, 1.9. And the two years after that, it's going to be exactly 2%. So it's exactly, you know, where the Fed, the Fed wants it. Janet Yellen also expects the unemployment rate to hold steady at about 4.5% over the next several years. So everything is going to turn out perfectly, according to the Fed. And that is going to produce, according to the markets, potentially three rate hikes next year. And of course, Janet Yellen is careful to mention that all of this is dependent on her and the Fed's forecasts being accurate. So whether or not the Fed ultimately increases interest rates at all depends on if their assumptions on unemployment, on GDP growth, on inflation, if they turn out to be correct, if more likely they turn out to be incorrect, which is generally the history, then something different may well happen. But I want to talk a little bit about what Janet Yellen talked about in her press conference, because that's really where you can uh, try to uh, discover what she's thinking because she's answering questions and you know she's not just reading from some prepared remarks. So maybe she lets something slip. And I thought one of the interesting questions had to do with the balance sheet. She was asked if the Fed plans on shrinking the balance sheet or when. And in fact, Yellen had mentioned in prepared remarks that for the balance sheet for now, the Federal Reserve will continue to reinvest all of the maturing uh, principal and all of the interest that it earns in additional treasuries. And so one of the reporters asked about shrinking the balance sheet. <clears throat> and what Janet Yellen said is that they hadn't decided like when they're going to do it, but that she wants to wait until the normalization process is well underway. Well, what does that mean? I mean, <clears throat> we've already raised rates twice. I mean, doesn't that mean the process is underway? Well, it's certainly underway, but is it well underway? Well, who knows? What it, I don't think the Fed knows, because again, I don't think the Fed has the intention or the ability to shrink its balance sheet, but it can't admit that. So it talks about waiting until the normalization process is well underway because it's never going to begin uh, shrinking the balance sheet. But here's an interesting admission that Janet Yellen made. Now, when the Fed first started talking about shrinking its balance sheet, this goes back to Ben Bernanke. You know, he said it in Congress when he was accused correctly of monetizing the debt. What Ben Bernanke said was, oh, no, we're not monetizing the debt. That's what, you know, banana republics do, because we're only buying these bonds temporarily. This is an emergency. When the emergency is over, we're going to sell the bonds. Well, at the time, I said that was a lie, that there's you know, he had no ability, no intention of selling any of these bonds. And here we are, what, seven, eight years later, and they haven't sold any. But eventually, the Fed changed its tune. And the Fed basically started talking about, well, we're not going to sell. We're just going to let the, the bonds mature. So we're just going to let it run down. Bernanke changed his comments. And, you know, nobody other than me uh, pointed, pointed this out. And he did that for two reasons. One, People were worried about the losses that the Fed might take on its bonds, right, if it actually sold them. And, of course, bond prices are plunging. So if the Fed sold any bonds now, we lose money. And 
the Treasury, by law, has to reimburse the Fed. It's a bailout for the Fed. And so that would be very embarrassing. So now they don't have to worry about that, right? Because they're just going to wait until the bonds mature. But the other potential problem is the markets were worried about the impact of the Fed liquidating all these bonds, selling all these bonds into the market, that bond prices would fall, <clears throat> interest rates would rise, and that would hurt everybody. It would hurt the government. It would hurt private sector, corporations, individuals, homeowners. So the Fed basically tried to diffuse those concerns by saying, oh, don't worry, we're not going to sell. We'll just let the bonds mature. But I said at the time that that was a distinction without a difference. Because even if the Fed doesn't sell, the Treasury has to. Because if the Fed just lets the bond mature, where does the Treasury get the money to repay the Fed? It's now got to take a brand new bond and sell it to a new investor in order to get the money to repay the Fed. So bonds have to get sold regardless of whether it's the Treasury or the Fed doing it. So there is no impact on supply by the Fed not selling. Yet the markets didn't you know, connect these obvious dots. And so there was some relief there. Oh, good. You know, we're not going to have all this selling. Well, a few years back, Janet Yellen actually laid out a plan where the Fed was going to do that, where the Fed was going to stop reinvesting and let the balance sheet wind down. And I'm quoting her. She was going to shrink it back down to where it was before the crisis meaning before the financial crisis, which meant the $4.5 trillion balance sheet she was saying was going to go down to less than a trillion. Now, I said at that time, and I'm the only one who said it, no way, never going to happen. She's just making this stuff up. Well, of course, by now, that process was supposed to have begun, and it hasn't begun. But now, in the press conference yesterday, what Janet Yellen says is that at some distant point in the future, When this process begins, it's going to be very slow, very gradual. But eventually, when it's over, she said, the Fed's balance sheet will be smaller than it is now. Well, well, smaller than it is now could mean anything. It could mean it goes from four and a half trillion to four trillion. She's not talking about going back down to where it was before the crisis. She's just saying it's going to be smaller and not saying by how much, because it's all a lie. It's never going to get smaller. Right. They're just gradually changing their rhetoric. The next thing that's going to happen to the balance sheet is it's going to go up. And why is the balance sheet going to go up? Because the Fed is going to have to buy more government bonds, whether it's part of an official QE4 program or not. That is what they're going to have to do to put a lid on rising interest rates, because all the foreign central banks are dumping their treasuries. Nobody wants to buy treasuries. This is the beginning of a massive bear market in treasuries. The bull market started like in 81 under Reagan, and it's over. I mean, everybody in the world is going to be selling. And if the Fed doesn't step up to be the only buyer, then rates are going to skyrocket. And I said, I think on my last podcast, if Donald Trump or Congress or anybody believes that we're going to get fiscal stimulus, it is impossible without the Fed monetizing the debt to prevent the stimulus from dramatically increasing interest rates because the stimulus by definition means the government's going to run bigger deficits. And that means even more supply coming on the market. And it means even more debt that needs to be financed. Not only do we have to refinance the maturing debt, but we have the new debts every year that have to be financed. So none of this could happen 
unless the Fed grows its balance sheet. And they're obviously gradually preparing the markets for doing that because they keep changing uh, what they're impl- you know, claiming that they're going to be able to do <clears throat> with that balance sheet. You know, the other admission that I thought was interesting and actually surprised me, Janet Yellen was asked about her comments about, you know, running an overheated economy, a high pressure economy, you know, this nonsense Keynesian, you know, they love to compare the, the economy to a car that they can just step on the gas and the brake and brakes and, you know, they can determine the speed of the car, right? So she had talked about a high pressure economy and the idea was that, hey, we can allow inflation to be more than 2%. And she really walked away from that. That was actually the most hawkish thing that she said. Now, I don't believe it, but she said it. She said, look, you know, I never advocated the high pressure economy. I simply, you know, postulated it that maybe, you know, it'd be considered, but I'm not advocating it. And she specifically said that she does not want inflation to be above 2%. So she's walked that back. She said she doesn't want it to be below 2% either. So as far as Yellen is concerned, inflation needs to be exactly 2%. She doesn't want it to be lower. She doesn't want it to be, to be higher. But of course, again, all this is a bunch of noise because inflation is going to be a lot higher than 2%, and there's nothing the Federal Reserve is going to do about it. In fact, one of the things that everybody seems to miss when it comes to inflation is that When the Fed raises interest rates and when interest rates rise in general, that is inflationary to the degree that you measure inflation in consumer prices. Because one of the reasons that consumer prices rise is because costs, which are also prices, but when costs are rising, then businesses pass on those costs to the extent that the market will bear it by raising prices. Now, in some cases, uh, demand falls off. Many people can't afford the higher prices, so uh, they lose some sales and then they have to raise prices more and they find some equilibrium where they sell fewer products or services at at higher price points. That's what's going to happen. Interest is a big cost in this economy. It's bigger than most people believe because interest has been so low for so long, right? So many businesses, certainly Uh, landlords, right? If you are a tenant and you're renting property, chances are your landlord doesn't own the house you're renting or the apartment building you're renting free and clear. Chances are he's taken advantage of low interest rates over the years and he's got a debt. He's got a big mortgage. And these commercial mortgages, they're not like, you know, 30 year fixed rate mortgages. A lot of these are variable rate mortgages. They adjust very frequently. And so now the landlord's have a big increase in the cost of servicing their debt. Well, how do they recapture that? They gotta raise their their rents. Rents are already going up. They're about to go up even faster. Now, you know, maybe if you know you raise your rent, uh, you could lose the tenant. He could go to another uh, rental. But if everybody's in the same situation, if all the landlords are raising their rents because their interest costs go up, well, I mean it's the same thing. Now you can say, well, I guess uh, the tenant can go out and buy a house. <laughs> yeah, right. Most of the people who are renting right now, they can barely afford the rent, let alone the cost of home ownership, which is a lot more than just a mortgage payment, your taxes, maintenance, and, and all that. You've got to come up with some down payment and things like that. But also, look at what's happened to mortgage rates. They are surging. So to the extent that rents are going up, so is the cost of buying a home. They're all going up. So there's, you can't just say, well, I'll just buy a house 
because that's getting more expensive too. Unless you think real estate prices are going to collapse, which nobody seems to do, uh, homeownership is going to be a lot more expensive. And so renters are going to be trapped and they're going to have no choice. Uh, they're going to have to pay higher rents. But look, everybody, you know, you're a small retailer. You know, you've got debt. Well, now you've got to raise your prices. Maybe you're a transportation company. You know, you've borrowed money against your trucks or whatever. Now you've got to raise prices for transporting goods. I mean, higher interest rates are going to raise costs throughout the economy. A lot of companies that produce things, they borrow money to finance their operations. All of this is going to cost more money. All of this is going to add to consumer prices. So ironically, as the Fed is raising rates, they're actually raising the inflation rate as measured by the CPI. And if they were committed to fighting inflation, they would have to raise rates again, which would put more pressure on consumer prices and so on and so on. And they just have to keep raising rates. In fact, even if we get the three rate hikes that the markets anticipate in 2017, which I don't think we will get. But even if we got them, I believe that the official uh, rate of inflation, the CPI, will rise by more than those 75 basis points. So in other words, the Fed will always be behind the curve when it comes to inflation, that even though they nudge up nominal interest rates, real interest rates will be falling. And what's important, at least to the markets, is the real level of interest rates, not, not the nominal level, but what's actually there after inflation, which is a good transition to the markets because the markets have reacted to this rate hike exactly the way they did to the last rate hike. Right? The, at least the currency markets and the gold market, I think the bond market is much weaker this time and the stock market, at least for now, is a little bit more resilient. But remember, you know, the stock market still waited a bit before it collapsed the last time the Fed raised rates. But, you know, now they have all this Trump-related optimism. Uh, and so the question is, when is the bloom going to come off that rose? So you've got another factor that's kind of supporting stock prices temporarily. But certainly the dollar has risen. The dollar index now at a 14, 15-year high. It's, uh, you know, taken out the high that it hit, obviously, when the Fed hiked rates Last December, gold prices are not quite as low as they were. I mean, yet, I mean, it's possible it could fall, uh, but gold prices have fallen. In fact, they already fell based on the Trump victory, and now they fell again based not on the rate hike, because everybody assumed the rate hike. But I think before the, red hike, the Fed hiked, people were thinking maybe one or two rate hikes in 2017, and now they're thinking three. So I think it's the expectation of a slightly uh, more aggressive Fed that provided the fodder to, to sell gold and buy the dollar, even though Yellen herself admitted that they're just barely more optimistic now than they were the last time they met. So I think the markets are reading a lot more into it than what the Fed uh, is, is trying, to, trying to reassure them. But nonetheless, you got this sell-off based on higher rates. But to the extent that we get higher rates, they're only going to be nominal rates. They're not going to be real rates. And I think, you know, soon into next year, either the Fed is going to start walking back its rhetoric or the markets are going to figure this out on their own because the data is going to be weaker than expected. I do believe that we're going to see a reversal in the unemployment rate. I believe that higher interest rates are going to have a negative effect on an already weakening economy. 
you know, the fourth quarter GDP is going to be quite a bit lower than the third quarter. I said earlier I thought the third quarter would be the strongest of the year, and that will be the case. But we are losing a lot of economic momentum, despite some of the enthusiasm uh, for Trump. Uh, The momentum is leaving the economy, and I think this will continue into uh, the first quarter. I mean, this is already, again, I said one of the longest economic expansions on record. It is the weakest on record, and it has also required the most amount of of stimulus on record. But now that we've had this sharp increase in interest rates, which I expect to continue into the end of the year and early next year, that is going to be a bigger dragon, even if you believe that some tax cuts or more government spending will be stimulative, that stimulus is not going to arrive in time uh, to short circuit uh, the downward pressure on the economy. So I do believe that these moves will be reversed in both gold and the dollar just the way they were earlier this year. You know, initially people thought, oh, the Fed is going to raise rates a bunch of times, and then they gradually reduced those expectations. Gold had a big rally, the dollar. Uh, sold off somewhat, not not as much as gold rallied. I think the same thing is going to happen next year, except I don't think it's going to fizzle out at the end of the year because there's not going to be another election. There's not going to be this ridiculous you know, head fake a rally that I think is uh, getting people to be completely uh, positioned the wrong way. So I think that we can have an even stronger finish to the year, meaning that we have gains in gold at the beginning of the year, but then we build on those gains at the end of the year as things end up being quite a bit worse than is generally expected. I mean, I mentioned this again on my podcast. People are talking about, oh, this is going to be like Reagan all over again. It's not even close to like Reagan. This is going to be more similar to Bush, right? If you remember, we had eight years of Bill Clinton. And when George Bush won, there was a lot of optimism initially about the stock market because now we're going to have a Republican in there and, you know, we're going to cut taxes and all this good stuff, right? Less regulation. And the stock market, investors were excited. The stock market lost ground during the eight years of the Bush presidency. He, Bush left, when he left, the market was lower than, than when he took the oath of office. See, the problem is when Bush stepped in, the stock market was very expensive. We had a bubble. Well, that's the same thing that's happening with Trump. Trump is becoming president when the stock market's in a bubble. In fact, he knows it's a bubble when he ran for office. He said it was a big, fat, ugly bubble. Well, yeah, and now it's bigger, fatter, and uglier than it was when he was a candidate. So this is a bubble, and the air is going to come out of it. But also... When Bush was elected, there was a dollar bubble. There was a dollar bubble in the second term of Bill Clinton. Well, we have a huge dollar bubble in the second term of Obama, right? Also, you know, gold had sold off during the second term of, uh, of uh, Clinton. So did uh, commodities like oil. Well, the same thing happened during the second term of Obama. Gold sold off. Oil sold off, same circumstances. What did Bush do? What was his stimulus? They cut taxes, particularly 
you know, to make stocks more valuable. Remember, they cut the capital gains tax. They cut the tax on dividends. Very, very good for the stock market, making dividends uh, you know, subject to a much lower tax. Right? So they cut taxes. They increased government spending to stimulate the economy. They even had the, the, the repatriation holiday. You know, that ha- took a few years to pass that, but it happened. They get a first term of Bush. And the tax rate then was half the tax rate that's being proposed today for doing the exact same thing. So Bush did all the things that Trump is talking about doing as far as stimulating the economy with tax cuts and and more government spending. But what was the net effect of this Keynesian stimulus? Well, the budget deficits went way up. I mean, these accounting surpluses under uh, Clinton, the last years of Clinton, became big deficits. I mean, not big based on today's standards, but big based on the standards back then. Right? And so what happens? We had bigger deficits. The trade deficits skyrocketed. Why? Because we had all this extra money to spend, and so we spent it on imports. Same thing we're going to do now. I mean, despite Trump talking about you know, buying things in America, making things in America, we don't have the capacity to do that. The factories aren't there, and they're not going to magically appear there just because he's president. So if all of a sudden we get some stimulus and people have more money to spend, where are they going to spend it? They're going to spend it on imports. So the trade deficit's going to go up. The budget deficit is going to go up. What did that do when it happened under a Bush? Well, the dollar bubble burst. The dollar dropped for almost the entirety of the Bush presidency. Gold prices skyrocketed. Oil prices, other commodities skyrocketed. And, you know, the stock market went down and then tried to get back up. But foreign stock markets went way up. You know, so that's what happened under Bush. So that's probably what's going to happen under uh, under Trump, only the economy is going to be worse under Trump. We're not going to get the temporary benefit of a housing bubble, right? That's not going to happen because housing prices are going to be under a lot of pressure unless the Fed comes back and does another round of quantitative easing. But I doubt that will produce another housing bubble. If anything, it will prevent housing prices from imploding, but it's not going to create another bubble. I think the bubble blowing days are over. You know, when when Bush was elected, you know, the national debt was only about five trillion. Now it's 20 trillion. So we are in a much, much deeper hole. And of course, the Fed has this enormous balance sheet that it didn't have then. We are so addicted to cheap money. Interest rates were were nothing near uh, zero when when Clinton was president. So Donald Trump is inheriting a much bigger problem than the one Bush inherited from Bill Clinton and was able to cover up for most of his presidency until it blew up in 2008. And then he handed Obama a huge problem. Obama was able to cover that problem up, uh, not enough to allow Hillary Clinton to win, but enough so that he could get reelected, right? So he covered up the problems with a big bubble. But I don't believe there's any way that Trump can cover these problems up. They are going to blow up uh, while he is in office. And hopefully it's not the Trump, you know, kind of free market rhetoric that gets the blame. The blame for the disaster that is going to happen while Trump is president is not because we elected Trump. It's because of all the things that were done before we elected Trump by his predecessors, but not just the predecessors in the White House, but at the Fed, by Bernanke and by Alan Greenspan. These are the problems. And of course, uh, Trump was criticizing the Fed until he was elected. 
Now he's going to be buddy-buddy with the Fed because he does not want this bubble to pop while he's in office because he doesn't want to get blamed for it. No incumbent wants to get blamed for the disaster. Nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. They don't want to be the messenger who ends up full of bullet holes. So he's going to do what he can. But I just don't believe that we have the ability to do it anymore. It is just too big. The problems are too big to cover up. So, you know, this honeymoon is going to end and it's going to end soon. This unbridled, irrational optimism that we can transition from a bubble economy to a real economy, that none of the monetary mistakes of the past matter, that we can erase it all by renegotiating some trade deals and maybe having some uh, Keynesian fiscal stimulus, uh, even if we do manage to reduce some regulations, none of this is enough. There is a bill that needs to be paid, right? We have an economy that is completely screwed up as a result of this reckless monetary policy that has gone on for so long. No country has been levered up to this degree. No economy has had this much malinvestment, this much misallocation of resources than the United States. Our ability to issue U.S. dollars and borrow at ridiculously low interest rates has created an economy that is completely unsustainable and has allowed us to evolve in a way that can only end in disaster. And the truth of the matter is, the sooner that happens, the better. You know, people are like, oh, Peter, are you just rooting for this to happen? I'm not rooting for it to happen. I know it's going to happen. But I also know that the sooner it happens, the better. Because the bigger we make the problems, the harder it's going to be to correct them. Right? The sooner that we can stop digging the ditch deeper, that means that we have a... Uh, shallower ditch to try to climb out of. So, you know, it's already like the Grand Canyon. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine making it bigger, but we're going to. We are making it bigger now. And the sooner that we can turn the corner and acknowledge our mistakes and correct them in a real way, the sooner that we can create real prosperity, the type of prosperity that would actually lift the living standards of average people, because that's not what happened at all. Uh, during the last eight years, which is why um, Donald Trump is the president and why Hillary is not. It's because the economy was a disaster. Well, that disaster didn't go away with Obama. Just electing Trump doesn't make the problems that resulted in him being elected go away. We have to solve the problems. And so far, nobody is even talking about solving the problems. All we're talking about is making the problems bigger. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.
Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams and How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off for Free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.